crazy smart. For those of you listening at home, Sarah just saved the day with a clock. I guess I saved the day with a grill. Yeah, she should tell you how she saved the day with a grill. How did she save the day with a grill? Is your number? Oh, yes. We forgot batches from the grill on the retreat. So did you take, like, a couple of sticks? I tried flint and steel from Cody first, but then I put a napkin in a toaster. <laughs> oh my gosh. They will never let us go back to Menowave. They're a bunch of pyros. That's right. All right. Yes, and, and Sarah is getting up to you. I want to defer to you as an elder, right? You are doing a great job. I like to refer to Randy as an elder. So wait, defer? So yes, let's pray. All right, dear Lord, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to um, look into your word later on and to look into the history of, of your family, your church here today, right now. And we give this time to you and pray that you be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going through church history, and we're, we're having fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there you go, there you go, because it's supposed to be fun. We've been going through all these different ages. We're, we're into the 14th century now, and part of the fun of this is, uh, and, and, and I say this because I want to put things in a, in, a, in a perspective, part of the fun of this is that we're a part of history where well, there's not a lot that a lot of people know, where they, they only know bits and snippets of it. They go, yeah, Leonardo da Vinci and uh, Rembrandt and... Galileo and um, Einstein all were in, you go, no, no, those people are all different parts of history. You know, you might want to think through that a little bit. But we kind of clump a bunch of things together. And so as we are preparing, because we're almost to, to the Reformation here. And, yes, I've been waiting for you to pop up. Thank you. Um, so as we're working through, uh, through history, it helps to get a sense of what is the background of that Reformation. And so today we're going to talk about the beginning of the, thir- uh, the 14th century, which is a time of a lot of turnovers, a lot of things changing really, really fast. So, for instance, there's a guy named Gazan Ilkhan who was converted, and even then I have to back up, because you don't know what an Ilkhan is necessarily. Uh, do you remember Temujin? When we talked about him, what's Temujin's other name, more famous name? Those, wait, before, those of you who go, oh, I totally remember this. Be quiet for a second. Anybody else n- happen to know? What Temujin's real, uh, really famous name is? Genghis. Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan had a grandson named Hulagu who set himself up as the Khan or the, the big leader of this uh, smaller Khanate in Persia, <laughs> this little subordinate Khanate, this minor kingdom, which is what they called an Ilkhan, means like mini Khan if you want to think of it that way. So he's got this smaller Khan in, in, in Persia. Now what's interesting is he is actually raised as a Nestorian Christian. Because if you remember, the, the Mongols at this time were, were still pretty cool about letting everybody believe whatever they wanted to believe. In, in, in the Mongols, religious tolerance is kind of the, the catchword of the day. He was raised as a Christian. But a Nestorian Christian. You remember the Nestorians? These are the guys that believed that Jesus had two completely separate natures. He was this human being, and he was God, two completely different people stuck in one body. We sit there and think, no, he's 
fully human, fully God, at the same time. Nestorius said, no, 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 no. He's God, shkunk, and he's man, shkunk. Two separate, uh, non-touching natures. But, there, just, just to put it in, in, into perspective, there's a time 700 years ago when Iran was run by Christians. Mongol Christians. Again, when we think about history, we tend to think about things in very simple, very broad terms. The Mongols were like this. The, the Muslims, or Iran is a Muslim nation. So, yeah. 700 years now or 700 years prior to the Renaissance? No, uh, good point. So, 700 years ago from now, during the Renaissance, uh, <laughs> the beginning of the Renaissance, Iran is being ruled by Christians. And that's kind of important because when we think about history, like I said, not only do we think about broad terms, but we also think about uh, things being essentially one way and always having been that way, or they will always be that way. And it's kind of helpful to look back and say, it's a lot more complicated than that. Things are constantly changing. Things are constantly flowing with things. So anyway, you got Mongol Christians running Iran. By the end of the 13th century, this Ilkhanate had grown to be almost as big as the Golden Horde, which is the, which the northern Khans that are up here. This is a pretty huge thing, even though it's still called the subordinate Khan. It's a pretty big one, right? And it's affecting a lot of different things. But that meant that you're going to have some tussles over who gets to be in charge. The more something gets to be important, the more people notice it, the more people notice it, the more they go, well, that should be mine, shouldn't it? Right? This was one of the fun things about driving a 1998 beat-up blue Buick LeSabre is because I could, like, park it next to somebody's Maserati, and I don't even need to lock it. Because I'm like, nobody's, nobody's wanting this. Now when they sit there, it's a great car, but it doesn't scream, I'm a great car. In fact, Sarah keeps making fun of my current Buick LeSabre because she's mean that way. <laughs> so... <laughs> After Gazan's uncle uh, reigned for four years, after he had been there for four years, because he had been supported by Buddhist supporters within the Khans, because again, religious tolerance, everybody gets to believe whatever they want. After Gazan's father was murdered, his uncle reigns, and during that reign, Gazan gets old enough to finally wed a, a supposedly beautiful woman named Kukichin, who is a gift from Kublai Khan, who is the Khan of the, of the big golden horde up to the north who was brought to Persia to marry Gazan's father by Marco Polo. Because remember Marco Polo? I'm trying to, I know, for those of you that you go, this is the first time here, it's like canary to fire hydrant. But what I'm trying to do for, for people that have been here for a little bit is to get this sense of continuity. You realize Marco Polo is this Venetian who went east looking for, does anybody remember what he was looking for? Why did specifically, originally, did he go east? Well, who was he looking for? This Christian king who, who was controlling half of Asia, this guy named Prester John, who was going to come in and save the day by getting rid of the, of the Muslims, except there is no Prester John. It was this big myth, which is why, strangely, Marco Polo never found it. He did find China, though. Um, not discovered China, because China had already been there for a while, right? But he did find China, and as part of it, as he was coming back, Kublai said, would you bring this girl back to marry Gazan's father? But, of course, by the time that she could, the guy had been murdered. Now Gazan has married her, which is great, because he's thinking, okay, I am now married to... I, my father had been the Khan, Ilkhan. I am now married to the woman that Kublai Khan wanted to be the, the queen of the Ilkhan. I'm totally in. 
when my uncle's done, I'm I'm totally gonna be the cop, right? There's it's a it's a no-brainer. Yeah, it makes total sense. Except his cousin Baitu murdered his uncle with the support of his own Christian allies within the Mongols. And so you've got this coalition of Buddhists that's put one guy up, and this coalition of Christians that now murder that guy and put this new guy up. Stealing Ghazan's throne. So you're Ghazan, what are you going to do? Well, you could, except that's not really going to help you, because they've already got their candidate. You could kill the candidate, but you still have to find your own conspirators, don't you? You have to find your own group. And so he looks and he finds this Muslim emir from the Golden Horde named Nauruz. Now I've got my own group of people. There's the, most, there's the Buddhists over here that did this. There's the Christians over here that did this. And now I'm with the Muslims. But in order to get in good with the Muslims, he's required to convert from Christianity to Islam. And so our Ilkhan Ghazan converts to Islam and takes it really seriously. In fact, though up till this time, they've really been pushing this religious tolerance. Ghazan makes Islam the state religion of the Mongols. Everybody must be Muslim. That's kind of important, isn't it? Sure. Absolutely huge group of people. Here he is. Here's Ghazan studying the Quran and teaching others from the Quran. This is crucially important that suddenly the Muslims are, are now part of that group that is actively telling everybody to convert to, to Islam. You've got two major powers. There's all these emirs and sultans down here in North Africa and in the Middle East, and the Khans of, the, of, of Northern and Central Asia. This is now a very active and militant Muslim world. If you're sitting in Europe, how do you feel? Threatened just a smidge, right? Because they keep invading Europe. They keep invading Europe all over the place. However, it's not as bad as... <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't scary. <laughs> it's not as bad. <laughs> <laughs> as it seemed. Actually, you talk. Could you possibly reset? Looks like this. Yeah, that's a, that's a little thing that connects it to this. I defer to him as my elder, my father. Yeah, I have a question. Yes. About if he if he changes, uh, converts to Islam, thank you, Christianity, and gets really into it, doesn't he have to go back and chop the heads off all the Buddhists and the Christians because that's what they believe? Well, okay, different. Um, what he feels compelled to do is, is forcibly convert all of the other all the other Mongols and all the people around him. And in Mongol society, the, the Khan is all-powerful. So when this Khan says, and now you're all Muslim, for the most part they go, okay. Yeah, it, it's, he didn't have to. Yeah. He didn't have to actively run around beheading Mongols. Now, they did run around killing a lot of other Christians and Buddhists within their spheres of influence. Non-Mongols who happen to be sitting there within the, the Ilkhanid or the, or the Golden Horde. And it's important to note, um, not every Muslim necessarily has exactly the same theology as every other Muslim. It's, it's like saying, what do Christians believe? There are some core beliefs, but there's a lot of wiggle room in, in terms of things. We all believe that uh, people should be baptized, right? 
as an adult by immersion, right? Oh, I did, didn't I? Or we all believe that um, we're we're soldiers of the cross, that uh, that we fight for the kingdom of God with swords and guns and things and force people to convert, right? No. Some of us do, some of us don't. Some of us believe one thing, some of us believe another. And the same thing with Islam. There are some Muslims who are forcibly beheading people today. There are a lot of Muslims in the Middle East going, well, that's just nuts. You know, there's a ton of Muslims in the United States going, uh, that's just horribly nuts. That's not the way we believe at all. And yet there's, uh, there's stuff in, in the Hadith and even in the Quran that encourages that. So, I mean, there's differences. Anyway, good point. What I'm saying is this, aside from the screen flipping up loudly, is not as scary as it's necessarily looking because um, these guys don't all get along. I mean, this is a collection of, of, of sultanates and things. These guys are more just uneasy allies, but they keep invading each other. They're not going to have this one big coordinated front. Besides, the European states are getting strong enough that they, they're, they're able to repel most of these things. As, as, the, as the Mongols keep invading to the east or to the south, things they keep getting pushed back out. And so there's about the only place in Europe where you're going to see, at this stage of the game, uh, a, a strong Muslim presence is down here in the southern part of Spain, in Granada. They're still hanging out there. But other than that, they're just kind of, there's this <laughs> equilibrium, the status quo. The world is held, I said, a kind of a detente, where everybody knows that they can mutually destroy one another, but also it would be a real pain to do that. And so there's actually a certain degree of peace going on. They still nip at each other's borders a little bit, but nobody's trying to invade one another majorly. Instead of trying to build empires, they're kind of competing with each other. And we're going to see that as the as the Renaissance kicks in. We talked a little bit about that last week. That you're going to see a lot of economic competition and one-upsmanship with one another, rather than let me invade your kingdom and try to build my empire. So, um, 1303, Benedict XI, becomes the new pope. Remember Boniface VIII that we just talked about last week, who was kind of a twerp? Kind of a twerp. Yeah, that's, that's a twerp. And, and the ocean's a bit moist. So this guy's, this guy's uber, uber twerpy. And so Benedict says, I want to fix this. I want, to, I want to remove the black eye that Boniface left us with. So I'm going to make it illegal to speak anything ill of Boniface in public. You can't question the validity of his papacy. If I do this, it'll all go away. Everybody will just forget it, right? Because <laughs> that's the way it works. That's the way it works. If you just say, nobody gets to talk about it. He also said, I'm going to lift that excommunication off of King Philip of France. Because um, he got mad at us. And, and Boniface did not like France. I'm going to get chummy with France. Everything's going to be fine. I will, however, still excommunicate Philip's chief minister, Guillaume de Negrega, who had pushed for uh, getting rid of Benedict. He had butted heads with Benedict. I'm going to excommunicate that guy. But that's it. Everything's going to be okay now, right? So, Dunogare has Pope Benedict assassinated eight months into his papacy. Yeah, well, into the Renaissance, right? Yeah, well, and this is one of the fun things. What? Actually, no, this is, this is the Renaissance. And so, so, what's the, anybody think, what's the preferred way of assassinating somebody in the Renaissance? Poison. You give them, you know, pufferfish for dinner. You know, you you poison all over the place. 
And, and so uh, this is where we're going to start getting this rash of assassinations throughout the, the Renaissance. People taking out people that they go, well, I don't like you, so you're dead. So you're going to get a new pope. Clement V becomes the new pope. And to make sure that everybody gets along, Clement is way stinking French. <laughs> Clement Bertrand de Goff. Raymond de Goff is now, is now our pope. And he is totally French. He's coronated in Lyon. He moves the papal throne to Avignon in France. And stays there for 67 years. The Avignon Papacy. In fact, it's going to be called the Captive Papacy, or even the Babylonian <coughs> Captivity by Catholic historians from now on. What? It's funny. Like, it's the Babylonian. It is! It's like, oh! You go, well, your Pope took you to Babylon, though. It, it's not like the Babylonians came in and forcibly evicted you like they did in the Old Testament. You go, no, 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 no. The Pope said, hey, let's go hang out in France and put ourselves under the authority of the French kings. Clement says, I, I'm going to explain how, remember that, that book that Boniface, that bull that he wrote, that said, the whole world is completely, completely, every human being is under the auspices of the Pope. The Pope is in charge of everybody. He says, well, not the French kings. I mean, that was for, like, Holy Roman emperors. And when you really understand what he was trying to say, and these are French kings, it's a different thing. So where Raymond was he, the God. Where was he born? Like, what, if he... Was he French? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. it's, it's, yeah. So he was French. He was okay. French. And so he's like, I'm getting coronated in Lyon. I'm moving to Avignon. We're all speaking French because that's what it means to be Catholic now. The Holy Roman Church is now in France. They still call themselves Roman, which I think is hysterical. They'll even refer to Rome, you know, Avignon. <laughs> and again, I've used this example before. If we sit there and say, why, wow, that's ridiculous. Where is the Urbana Conference held? <laughs> Where is the Urbana Missions Conference held? St. Louis. Louis. Still call it the Urbana Missions Conference, don't we? Held in St. Louis. Anyway, still call it, you know, it's Rome. Well, Avignon. Well, it's got like one of the same letters. And he said, we're going to be under the direct authority of Philip IV. He is going to be our authority. In fact, one of his very first acts is to name... Uh, nine French bishops as cardinals. Two darn many Italians in there. We're getting some... In fact, I'm going to get 14 more later on as I go as Pope. 23 cardinals are now French as God intended it. Hey, if you like French, this, this is a wonderful time for you. you know, me, I, I don't much care for French because you can't really pronounce it right unless you got post-nasal drip. And ignore half the letters in every word. So it's... Oh, yeah. There's an N. Don't say oh. Anyway. Oh, I get to pick on French. I hate French. Uh, not French people. I would never say that about them. I hate the language. Love the sauces. I hate the language. Clement uh, uh, did try to exert a little bit of control over the church affairs because Philip started getting um, the Renaissance set in Latin version of with things. He started getting in, in Clement's face, and so he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually exert a little bit of, of strength. The day Clement took office, Philip openly condemned the Knights Templar, the, that group of knights that um, uh, were one of the first orders of, of holy knights that the church had set up. They're like monks that run around and kill people with swords. 
Um, but they're also extremely powerful. They're very wealthy. They're the ones who um, took back all the, the spoils from the Middle East and then distributed it back to the church. So, in essence, they've become like the bankers of the Holy, of the Holy Church in Rome. Not officially, but in point of practice, because all the money keeps funneling through the Templars, and they keep a large chunk of it. So they're getting extremely wealthy this time, especially in France. And so Philip sees them as problematic, because now they're a threat to him, right? So what do you do? You get rid of them. He says, I'm going to condemn them. I'm going to say they're guilty of usury. They sell their offices. They credit inflation. They're fraudulent. They heresy. Sodomy, witchcraft. Do you have any proof of this at all? Sure. No. Well, I just know it. Odds are, they're only guilty of the economic sins, and maybe only some of those. Did they keep a lot of the money? Yes. Did they do credit inflation and kind of control credit? Yeah. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Did they commit fraud with people? Depends on how long to define it, but possibly. Is, do we have any record of immorality, witchcraft, heresy? Not necessarily, but now they're kind of famous, or at least at the time afterwards, they're kind of famous for being these. Oh, they went off the deep end. They got crazy. They got greedy. We don't really have any documentation that they went bonkers off the deep end, but Philip accused them of doing this because he wants to get rid of them. So now you're Clement. What do you do? The king of France that you have said you're under the authority of just said that the most powerful order of religious knights that you guys set up He's going to get rid of it. What do you do? Do you support the king of France and kick your own wealthy, important de facto bankers to the curb? Or do you defend them? What do you do? What would you do? Think of the politics of this. Because by this time, church is all about politics. Unlike today, when it's all about worship. Um, so, you're the Pope. What do you do? Okay, but then that legitimizes that Philip gets to do this, right? Well, at least it's, it's looking into the, the accusations. Which is good. That's exactly what the church should do, right? If the accusations are inappropriate. Anybody else want to toss up something clever to do? Father, try to compromise, go to the king, take. You could. But it's one thing to say, you know, we're totally French. It's another thing to go begging to the king as the as the as the pontiff of Christ. Anyway, the whole order gets arrested. They get rounded up. They get tried. Clement sitting there going, "What do I do? What do I do? What do I do?" Before the king of France could actually convict them, Clement dissolves the order. He sits there and goes, "You know what? I think they've outlived their usefulness. We're done." Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. So wait, I. I don't actually get to exert kingly authority and take them out. No, it's not your authority. It's my authority. I'm not going to defend them because then I'm going against the king of France. But I'm not going to let the king of France dictate terms to the church. So there are no Templars anymore. In fact, we're going to give all their stuff. Oh, well, he, one more thing. He did take the, the couple of the leaders and, and, uh, and burn them at the stake just to you know show that he agrees with the king that maybe they were naughty. But under church authority, under church law, under papal authority, under papal law, I get to decide this, not you. Yeah, that wasn't any fun. Bernard, one of the guys in front of Notre Dame, who requested that he be facing Notre Dame so that he could be praying toward the cathedral, and that's the last thing he could see before he died. 
They took everything that the Templars had and they turned it over to the French Knights Hospitaller, if you remember those guys who were also in the Crusades, put a bunch of French knights and said, you can have all these holdings, which of course is just going to set up that problem in another generation or so with them. But, at least, at least, French guys now hold all this stuff. Specifically French guys. But they're not attacking all the different orders of knights. They're saying, oh, some of these are okay. In fact, we're going to just do a, let me, let me take a little sidebar here, a funky little teaching moment. Supposedly at this time, Clement presides over the creation of the Rosicrucian order, or the, or the Knights of the Rose Cross. Has anybody ever heard of the Rosicrucians? What have you heard about the Rosicrucians? My parents heard of Oh, fun. Uh, beyond nuts and nuts. <laughs> okay, very cultish. Well, supposedly it's based on this ancient philosophy of the Rosy Cross, which predates Christianity by millennia. You got this ancient thing with all sorts of funky symbols on it, and you use it in a very capitalistic sort of way to do incantations and things, much older than Christianity. So it's founded in 1313 by this mystic named. What? Well, but they, well, the Rosy Cross outdates Christianity, but the Rosicrucian order within Christianity is founded by a German mystic named Christian Rosenkreutz. By the way, German, what does Rosenkreutz mean? Yeah, Rose, Rose Cross. Luckily, a guy named Christian Rosie Cross <laughs> uncovered this ancient philosophy of the Rosie Cross, right? What? No! The Lord does work in mysterious ways. It's like, it's like what if I found out that there really was this ancient religion, of the, the only one that's true, called Kevinism. I'm like, what are the chances that I'm the one that ran across Kevinism? Anyway. So Christian Rosenkreutz traveled extensively, learned from all these Sufi mystics and fakirs and all sorts of different people. Oh, he learned all this wonderful, amazing stuff. He's hard at work in his study, writing all this stuff down. Now, they mixed secret rituals and handshakes and recitations with this focus on doing good works in the community, building hospitals, um, uh, doing things in God's name for people. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Like what? Yeah, this formed the basis for pretty much every other European mystery cult that came after this, including the Freemasons. So Rosicrucians was before the Freemasons? Even the Freemasons will say that. They'll say, absolutely, there was this philosophy of the Rosy Cross. Now, Freemasonry will sit there and tell you that, that Freemasonry goes all the way back to the building of Solomon's Temple, right? Hiram Abith, this architect that was hired to... He's actually in the Bible. Um, hired to build Solomon's Temple was the first master mason and, and used this incredible yeah it's a photograph right there it <laughs> technically Freemasonry has actually begun in the early 1700s as a fraternity of rich European guys who met at a pub called the Goose and Gridiron but that doesn't sound anywhere near as impressive as Hiram Abiff building Solomon's Temple right we met in the back room of a pub, put blindfolds on one another, drank a lot, and came up with some really funky rituals. <laughs> and then later we, we dropped the drank a lot part. But we basically stole a lot of stuff from the Rosicrucians. And then we retrofitted it to ours. Of course, the problem is, if the Rosicrucians were made in 1313, 
and you're a Freemason who can trace their roots back to the building of the temple, how can the Rosicrucian Society be the background of yours? So you have to retroactively retcon it and say, ah, the Rosicrucians had to be in existence since before the founding of the temple. They've been around forever! And now we're back to the funky Rosie Crossy thing, right? Fair enough. Rosenkreutz does. But they talk about they talk about the rose cross. And they talk about that the center of the rose cross is a rose that unfolds with all the different layers and things. So yes. I don't know what I forget what the word for I don't even know if I know what the word for actual physical rose is in German. What is it? It's like the color of the rose. Yeah. So anyway. We have no actual historical documentation of the rosy crossy thing prior to the Rosicrucians saying that it's an ancient mystical philosophy. We don't actually have any listings of it as an ancient mystical philosophy and anything other than Rosicrucian stuff. So, you know, put it into, into, uh, into context here. 1300 sounds about right. So 1313 sounds about right. Now, the oldest records of the Rosicrucians during the 17th century, because that's the earliest that we've got, say that Rosen, uh, Christian Rosenkreutz, if he ever actually existed, was born in 1378 which would make founding it in 1313 a little difficult for him, right? Um, for that matter, the Rosicrucians claim that he lived for another century, if not even longer than that, in secret, after founding the Rosicrucian Society. In fact, when you get into the 1700s, the Comte de Saint-Germain claimed to be Christian Rosenkreutz. He's like, I've been around for 400 years! I was also the wandering Jew. The guy who is doomed to walk the earth because he made fun of Jesus on the way to to his crucifixion. <coughs> and I'm Paul Bunyan. And Babe the Big Blue Ox. I'm, I'm all this stuff. He was really popular. You take him to really fancy parties and you just kind of set him loose on people. And he does magic tricks and he claimed to have a, 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 a gem that changed things into other things. He just did a lot of sleight of hand and things. Voltaire said he was the Wonder Man. Voltaire referred to him as the Wonder Man and a man who knows everything and who never dies. Voltaire being informed. Oh, totally. This guy's amazing. Today he's called David Blaine. <laughs> but that's the sort of thing. If you don't know who David Blaine is, he's this creepy street magician that claims to have picked up amazing abilities. And you go, yeah, that's so what St. Germain was trying to be, was David Blaine of his era. And so uh, all this is to say you really can't trust if a secret society or a magician says, let me tell you my history, don't, don't believe it. You know, you, there's really no reason to believe a showman who says, aha, and let me tell you about the incredible mystical arts that I, you know, stop. Sounds like the what's-his-face professor in Wizard of Oz. I was actually just thinking about the great Oz. You know, it's like, I have a faded but very impressive-looking uh, Velvet cloak and a pointy hat, and it's got stars and moons on it, so you know that I'm magical. These guys. Anyway, we have no reliable sense of exactly when the Rosicrucian order began, other than sometime in the Renaissance. So you get these Rosicrucians that are doing this kind of, ooh, if you come and be part of us, you're in the know of all this mystery stuff. And by the, by the time you get to the 18th century, there's a bunch of Europeans, Brits, that go, I want to do that. Let's do that. You know, so that's, that's, that's where they're at. And, 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 and trace it back. But anyway, 
1309, Boniface VIII is put on trial for heresy. What do you know about Boniface VIII? He's dead. He's been dead for eight years, right? The Denotherite, who never liked him, and who got excommunicated, and so he had to kill a pope, said, no, we've got to try him and convict him for heresy. He's been dead for eight years. It doesn't matter. But I thought you weren't supposed to talk, talk about him. I thought there was no Said the dead pope. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> said dead Benedict. Okay, so like he's dead, the voice of God sort of goes away, right? Clement V is sitting in the magic chair now, oh, so yeah, he can, okay. he's like, and Clement V is French, so when the number says he's like, yeah, okay. So witnesses come forward on both sides, actually we were talking about this after the after class uh, last week. It looked like it was going to be a deadlock, because they had witnesses from both sides, but then two extremely tough knights uh, came down, threw down their gauntlets, and, and said, Boniface is innocent, and we need trial by combat. In other words, we're going to fight to the death with anybody who says he's guilty. And because we know that God is always going to support the person who's right, then whoever wins, wins. If we win, Boniface was innocent. If somebody beats us, Boniface was guilty. Because that's the way God works, right? For the last several hundred years, this is what people have been thinking. If you drowned, then you were innocent because you didn't use your magic witch powers not to drown. Yeah, well, that's different, though. This is trial by combat. This is different. Okay, now, how many people think this is really not a particularly good way to decide a court case? Because it's basically just who's the toughest, right? How many people are aware that there are still some people, maybe in far off parts of the globe, that think if your plans succeed, they must have been from God. And if they don't, the way you plan them, it must not have been from God. If you are aware that there are some people that believe that, 9-11 thing for the Muslims. Oh, yeah. Well, even I sometimes think like that in my worst moments. Yeah, I think all of us at one point or another go, well, if there's an open door, it must be from God. If it's closed door, it must not be from God. If that didn't work, it must not be from If that church is growing, it must be because God is there. If that church isn't, it must be that God isn't. If surely God will not let anything bad happen to me. Wait, something bad happened to me. Where was God? My faith is shaken. Is that a fundamentally different philosophy than this? We still do this. And if your immediate reaction to this is, why, that's silly, I would agree with you. And yet people do still struggle in their faith sometimes, going, well, why did something bad happen to me? Why, why would something bad ever happen to somebody? If they're even in the will of God, why might something bad ever happen to somebody? Pardon me? Yeah, somehow, and I'm not even being trite or cheap or easy about this, somehow God goes, no, this is what I intended. This, this, this is either what you need in your life to, to get your act right. This is what somebody else needs in their life, Joe, to get their act right. This, whatever. Well, nobody took them up on the offer because they're tough, remember? These really, really tough guys. And nobody wanted to fight to the death with really, really tough knights. Which means that Boniface is obviously innocent. Yes? Why is the guy on the right holding the sword the wrong way? Yeah. 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 I thought he was the <laughs> okay. Um, it looks more like one of those. Uh... Actually, no, he is. Okay. All right. No, good question. Let me do this real quick. All right. This is actually a, a trial by combat, uh, a snippet about trial by combat from a German fencing manual. Um, fencing, but swords, but from a German sword fighting manual. And one of the um, 
the moves that you never see anybody do in a movie, but that if you if you do it right, works really really well, is when somebody starts to stab you, you grab their sword and pivot and turn, and now you've got their sword, and you pull it from them. It only works if you've got like metal gauntlets, because otherwise you have no fingers. Um, and it's also a good way to get yourself stabbed and killed. Now, he's still got a sword, so I'm not exactly sure if that's what this is pointing to, but that's what I took it to mean when he's doing this, is that he's essentially taking the guy's sword, but I don't know why this guy would have another sword, so I'm not sure. Well, it's a representation of two actions happening yeah, that's what and in succession, then. So, on the left is doing the jabbing, and it's telling, it's telling this is how it works, you know, I didn't even think about that, but yeah, pretend that this is a comic book drawing and you have some, like, ghost images up here, and it's like, I start to stab, and then I go, go and take it. Maybe. Now I totally see it. Now I do see it. I can't unsee that now. Point A, point B. Yeah. Point A, point B. Pardon? Are you dissing Germans now? No, no, I'm saying that would be wildly advanced pictorially to show multiple things happening in the scene. But they're German. It doesn't make difference to us now. Yeah, let's move on. So I thought Bonhoeff was pretty horrible. Why would there be two knights that were like, hey, we're willing to defend him? Maybe because they hate the French papacy. Maybe because uh, he was pretty horrible, but other people in the actual um, church thought he was pretty cool. Wow. And some of the things they did were horrible. Not everybody thought it was a horrible thing. Uh, I mean, bear in mind, at this time in history, the church is is owning their own brothels, right? I don't know. Remember that from, from a couple of councils ago where the church decided the best way to make sure that women don't get raped by men's rampant lust is to make sure that they provide prostitutes and then take the money from the brothel and use it for the glory of God. So if you sit there and you go, somebody is a, 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 a drug-dealing pimp in Avignon, the church might go, do you work for the church? And they say, well, yeah. They go, yay. Because we run brothels that sell a lot of hard liquor. And then we use that to control people. If you're really, really drunk, hopefully you're not strong enough to do uh, uh, really bad things. Because drunk people don't do really dangerous criminal things. Um, but that was one of the arguments. If we get them really falling down drunk, they'll just fall down instead of do something aggressive. So, again, different time in history. Different perspective on these things. Yeah, because the state owns lots of you know, gambling things. But it's for education. That's right. Uh, what in, um, Nevada uh, legalizes uh, brothels uh, and saying you know, outside of city limits, going, you know, at least we get the, the taxes from it. So, Clement died in 1314, and while his body was laying in state, lightning struck the cathedral, burning it to the ground. There was nothing left of Clement. You can imagine all the stuff that people wrote about that. You know, this is like the wrath of God against Clement. Whatever. We get John the Twenty-Second becoming the new Pope, and again he's decidedly French, right? So we got another French Pope here in Avignon. In fact, he's so French that he amped up the feud between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. Remember, the Guelphs were a family that was pro-Pope, and the Ghibellines were a family that was pro-Emperor. Not again. Oh, this goes on for a long time. <laughs> so he ramps up the feud against this new contender, the decidedly German Ludwig the Sixth of Bavaria. This guy is the next emperor coming along, and John doesn't like him. They do not get along at all. Now, it doesn't help that Ludwig was also a supporter of the Franciscans, who have completely fallen out of favor with the papacy nowadays, because the Franciscans said, we really think clergy should be poor. You shouldn't be owning a lot of stuff. And the Pope has a golden chair and a golden desk. 
uh, we're only three or four popes removed from a pope that the commission a bed made of solid gold that was so heavy that it fell through the floor and killed him. Right? <laughs> so the king minus. Yeah, well actually there was a there was a French king that learned nothing from that, did the same thing. Although I think that one was a throne that fell through the floor. Anyway. So so Ludwig says, I like the Franciscans, and John says, So you're German and you like the Franciscans, I like nothing about you. You're horrible. I don't even like your coat of arms. So John whips out Boniface's Unum Sanctum and reminds Ludwig that all the world, including guys who want to be emperor, are under the authority of the Pope. And Ludwig whips out Marsilius of Padua. This is a Renaissance man. Remember what we talked about? What's a Renaissance man? When put it. Jack of all trades. trained in a gazillion different things. This guy's trained in medicine, politics, theology, the whole schmear. This Renaissance man who writes a book called Defensus, Defensor Paxis, or Pastis, um, Defender of the Peace, and says that the papacy is corrupt. Um, it should have never been given the kind of authority that it has claimed for itself. And um, the emperor is the one who actually is the defender of the peace. He lays out a really good argument <coughs> as to why the Bible says this is not the way this should have been done. You, there are two totally different realms. They're, they're the kings of two totally non-overlapping kingdoms. The emperor doing the people, the pope doing the church. So you're John. What do you do? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, now, before that, though, I should say, there are other pro-Ludwig scholarly guys, particularly amongst the Franciscans, who come and support this. Like, there's a guy named William of Occam. Has anybody ever heard of Occam's Razor? Yeah. It, in philosophy, there's something called Occam's Razor, this argument that when in doubt, you should probably go with the simplest solution. Not the easiest, the simplest. The one that requires the least amount of jumping through hoops to make sense. You know, is it that, um, that if I, if I let go of this pen, 47 invisible monkeys come and silently come and take the pen and fling it to the floor and then scamper off so that you can't feel them? Or is there just some force that draws everything toward the earth? You know, I can't prove either one of these right off the bat. And you go, yeah, which one requires the least amount of metal hoop jumping to make sense? Occam's razor. And they were both Franciscans. And they were both Franciscans. And they're, and, and they're sitting there going, championing faith and reason. Let's use our brains. Let's not just automatically assume tradition is always right. Let's just stop and think a little bit. They supported Ludwig as opposed to John. So John excommunicates them all. Starts with Ludwig saying, I excommunicate you. You're an evil man. So Ludwig marches on, on Rome, ignoring the excommunication completely. All right? What? Not Avignon. Not Avignon. Because he goes to Rome, because that's where the Pope isn't. Right? But it is a Roman church. So he goes to Rome, where the Pope isn't, but theoretically the head of the church, and he wants to be the Roman Emperor. So he goes to Rome and gets himself officially crowned Holy Roman Emperor. <laughs> I don't care if you say I'm excommunicated, I'm the Emperor. Well, here I am. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so there's a there from opposite ends of the kingdom going to one another. And what's interesting is he's actually crowned by a Roman senator named Sciarra Colonna, who's the guy who actually slapped Boniface. Do you remember that from last week? There's the guy that when they arrested Boniface, he came and slapped him in the face and said, how can you be this much of a twerp? They rounded up this guy, who was quite elderly at this time, and they said, um, 
you crumble it back. Remind that this is itself a slap in the face of the Pope. First thing he does is depose Pope John the Twenty Second, because if you remember, the emperor gets to do that. There's that check and balance. The the Pope can theoretically excommunicate the emperor. The emperor can theoretically depose the Pope. Although Defensor Pacus said you can't do that because they're two totally separate realms, right? Use whichever legal precedent you want in any given moment. You, know, you sit there and go, the Pope has all the power. Shroom. Totally different political realms. Well, okay. And I depose you. I thought you said they're two totally... Shut up! Tradition is I can depose you. Neither one of them is really caring about the law at this stage of the game. They're just kind of throwing down whatever they want to do. And then he installs his own Pope. Pope Nicholas V, an Italian Franciscan. So in your face, French dude, he's an extremely popular Italian Franciscan. We now have two popes, right? Again, one in Avignon, one in Rome. And Nicholas presides over a mock trial of John in absentia, well, with him not being in Rome, where they, they took a straw dummy and they dressed him up like the Pope, and they ridiculed him in public and made fun of him and did all sorts of nasty things to the body, and then executed him. Yes. This sort of action is where we get that whole straw man argument, where you go, ah, oh, we put him on trial. You go, you put a stuffed dummy of him on trial. Perhaps that's why he didn't do such a good job of defending himself. Do you ever think about that? So they get rid of Pope John the Twenty Second, straw man, which is the same thing as getting rid of Pope John the Twenty Second, isn't it? Ludwig then marched out of Rome in 1329 as the new Roman Emperor. I'm German, I'm not going to stay in Rome. What are you nuts? I'm also king of Italy now, so I get, I get to be control of Italy, but I'm not staying in Italy. So I leave Rome, and what happens the moment he leaves Rome? Okay. Oh, comes back. Yeah! John immediately deposes Nicholas, who then runs away. He says, here you go. My imperial army's back, you Nicholas. Thank you. Let's make fun of the Pope. Ha 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 ha. My imperial armies are now leaving. Bop, bop, bop. Wait, so I'm alone? People armies! Because the Pope has his own armies, right? Because he's a king, just like anybody else. <coughs> so John deposes Nicholas, who runs away. Now he does later get to beg John's forgiveness and come back and spend the rest of his life as a prisoner in the Pope's palace. Magnanimous. It was very magnanimous. It's also a way to keep him under your thumb to make sure he's not running off and calling himself Pope. But... John also excommunicated William Ockham uh, for his part in the coup, and just started kind of doing a flurry of excommunications. You're all excommunicated. And people are just not listening to it anymore. I mean, if you remember a couple hundred years ago when a pope would excommunicate somebody, they were like, oh, no, that's horrible. But really, ever since, like, the Magna Carta era, um, people have been sitting there going, I don't feel excommunicated. I think you're wrong. And so for the last hundred years or so, we've actually built this foundation, this precedent for going, I know the Pope thinks he's in charge, but I don't think the Pope's in charge. I'm a good Catholic, and I don't think the Pope's really in charge, because I think this is a twerp Pope. And if he's a twerp Pope, you don't have to listen to him. That's not a good way to run a railroad, is it? But again, we're building a foundation for why this, this Reformation is going to come. Now, once you get to, to the, like the first quarter of the, of the 14th century, the Muslims are starting to move against Christians, but not European settlements. They're moving against Christians in the East, within their areas of influence. So the Ilkhanate, uh, um, 
attacks Arbel in, in, uh, in northern Iraq, which is filled with Christians. Pardon me, it's a Christian town. Because remember, up to this point, Mongols have been saying, you can believe whatever you want to believe. But now, now they're specifically Muslim. And so they killed 150,000 Christians living in that town. The Tughlaq dynasty invades northern India, slaughtering 200,000 Christians there. The Mongols of the Golden Horde make their move on Central Asia and then invade China and the Okanagan on the northern parts of that, slaughtering more thousands. Depending on the estimates that you, that you read about, in the 1300s, the Mongols killed something in the neighborhood of two to four million Christians in that, in that, uh, in that century. This is a huge time. Now, we don't normally think about this because we tend to be yellow-centric here. We tend to be focused on Europe, don't we? But there are Christians all over the place. There was a time when Iran is a Christian nation. There's a time when most of India was Christian. There's a time when there's a big move of Christ in China. There's a time when most of Central Asia was Nestorian and Eastern Orthodox Christian. But all that went away. We don't tend to think about that today because it hasn't been like that for a long time. But there was also a time when most of Spain was Muslim. And the rest of it that wasn't spoke German. So, I mean, the world changes. But this is a pretty big, ugly time of change in history. And lots of things are going on that, that fundamentally change the, the landscape. Now, speaking of change, Central Asia's population is decimated by this. There's also a bunch of, uh, there's a drought that goes on. Um, I'm trying to remember the order of events. I think there was a nasty drought followed by flooding, or was it the other way around? Flooding followed by nasty drought. It's flooding followed by nasty drought. Um, uh, just all sorts of bad stuff, and, and, the, and the population has been decimated. Nearly half the people are dead now from this area. And so nobody's left to farm the land. So you've got crops that are rotting in the fields, and you've got rats and other vermin swelling to the millions because they're eating all the stuff that people are leaving to rot. And then you get this, this nasty famine. So you've got this tons of rats, this nasty famine. So the, the rats move into what's left of the cities because there's nothing left to eat out in the, out in the, uh, in, in the farms. And brought the Black Death, which is where we're going to pick this up. Not next week, because next week we're going to have a missionary here. But what we'll pick up two weeks from now. But two weeks from now we're going to pick up how important this was in the history of not only Europe, but of the church itself. Because suddenly we're going to have a large chunk of people dying in droves within the span of only a couple of years. In, in, in China, in Central Asia, but particularly um, in the Middle East and Europe. And that's going to change everything fundamentally. Now, before I go too far, before I, but before I end, I wanted to leave a little bit of time here at the end. Ran through a bunch of things really quickly, and this is a bunch of stuff about people you've probably never heard of and can seem very distant from you. But maybe we should stop and remind ourselves, why are we studying this? When you hear this, what did I talk about today? What did we talk about today? This strikes you as relevant to where we're sitting today. Either in this church or the church in the United States or the world situation at large. What's relevant? Or is this colorfully irrelevant to us? Anything jump out at you today that we talked about?
the whole idea of, well, we're thinking about this over here, and there are all these Christians over here getting killed. That happens. That happens right now. You know, I sit in, in uh, Peoria, Illinois, and very rarely do I think about Christians getting killed today in other parts of the world. Now, here's what's interesting. Um, like in Syria, or, or, or um, the Sudan, or, well, several different places. You've had Christians being killed by the thousands over the last couple of years, right? And the news has broadcast this. The church has talked a lot about it. The Capital C Church in the United States has talked a lot about it. Some pockets of it do, but most of the time, not a lot. But you publicly behead one guy, and the Pope says, we need to make him a saint, right? Because he stood up for his Christianity. Why is it that thousands of people are killed on a yearly basis and nobody says anything? One guy, more than one guy, has gotten beheaded, but it was one guy in particular that got beheaded and the Pope went up in arms and, and people around the world are, oh my goodness, a third guy has gotten beheaded. We didn't, we didn't really come up in uproar about, as a country, we didn't really have a lot of uproar about thousands of people being beheaded and killed in different ways before that. Why, why suddenly are we interested? He was Western. Okay. He was on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah, let's link these. He's one of us. He speaks English. And that makes it political because it's political if it has to do with me. And you see it. And that changes everything. Like you were saying, we sit over here in Peoria. We don't think about all this stuff over here. We don't think about what's going on in China. China is now currently really cracking down on Christians and is uh, cracking down on Christian churches, ripping down steeples, ripping down church buildings, saying they're not up to code, even though the Christians are saying, actually, yes, they are. We went through all the hoops. We did everything we were supposed to do. And they go, nope, not up to code. And if you question me, I'm throwing you in jail. By the way, you can't meet in any place other than an established church building because you're a licensed church with the government, and we've destroyed your church building. It's not like we're trying to get rid of you. We're very open about other religions. But you can no longer actively worship Christ. Does the news talk about that? Does, maybe a blip, yeah. Because we don't see it. It's way over there. It's not one of us. It doesn't look like one of us. The people over there aren't speaking English. And we don't see it. If we saw a picture of, by the way, you can go online, pictures of government people pulling down steeples in China. And that's when people go, oh man, that's just wrong. Because they saw a picture of it. So how important is it for us to stop and go, wait, I've got brothers and sisters around the world that I spend whole weeks not even thinking about because I'm not looking at them at a given moment. For that matter, do you see why missionaries tend to go, put our picture on your refrigerator so that you remember to pray for us? What else? Thinking of, uh, I've seen that out a few people. The uh, University of California won't allow University to meet on campus because they don't allow a non-Christian to lead the group. Yep. 430,000 students and like something like something or other 23 campuses or something with the, with the California. It's California State, isn't it? Or no, the whole university system in California. But you've got a lot of different a lot of different uh, um, universities that are um, that are saying you have to let you cannot have any religious discrimination. Therefore, everybody get. You can't 
turn somebody away as being an officer in your group because they are not part of your religion, even if it is a religious organization. And, and there's other organizations that meet the Greeks, and they have things that say you have to meet certain requirements. But not religious okay. requirements. You don't have to be a certain religion to, to be a, you know, Alpha Chi. Yeah. Yeah, so if I don't play Ultimate Frisbee, I demand my right to be president of the Ultimate Frisbee Club? Give me a break. That's ridiculous. But that's not religious discrimination. They can say, well, if, you're not, if you don't do our thing, then you can't be a president. But if you that's say... That's not different, though. It's really not different. I'm, obviously, I, I agree with you. <laughs> you know, that that's wrong. But there's... What it is is a backwards way of saying we are being so tolerant to all religions. We are specifically religiously tolerant. Therefore, anything that smacks of religious um, discrimination, we're going to step on. So how many Christians apply to be president of the Muslim Student Association? Oh, that is the first thing I thought of when I read or those articles. Or Buddhist or, or Hindu or Arab, there's any other... Issues. I'm waiting for an atheist to go, I want to lead the Muslim organization. Now, or how about a Christian leading the atheist organization? Yeah, that'd be, yeah. That'd be fun. It, actually, what it reminds me, and this is, uh, oh, I'm getting the names mixed up, but when Emperor Dude, as a philosopher, write, see, church and state are entirely separate things, and they don't touch each other, so I can go in and tell the Pope that he can. Well, you, well exactly, which, again, you come back to when we say separation of church and state, even Ludwig couldn't keep that in his brain, right? Separation of church and state. Separation of church and state. We don't overlap. And I deposed the Pope. <laughs> yeah. And so you, you, so in the United States, people are going, separation of church and state. Separation of church and state. Separation of church and state. Here are the rules about your church. He's going, but wait a minute. You know, so, I mean, there's, you, logically, there are times where you cannot make that work. I mean, to the degree that to which they're saying it. There comes a point where you, you're, once you start legislating, you have to draw a bright line somewhere, and it's probably not going to make a lot of a logical sense as to where you're drawing. Um, and this is a perfect example of this. And we're running in this, uh, just what, what Cliff was talking about with this. Or you sit there and you go, this doesn't make sense as a bright line. Yes. socio-political things. Or any anybody any personal things. Anything where you said, you go, this this kind of struck me with with living as a Christian, not just boy our culture is dumb. Yeah. Um, as a parent, I was thinking about the papal institution. If if you go around, you know if I as a parent keep trying to, you know, lord it over my children and say, you can't do this, you have to do what I say, but I don't live up to what, if I, if I don't practice what I'm preaching, increasingly, they're just going to thumb their noses at me yep. and say, I don't have to listen to you. You don't even listen to yourself. It's a perfect example. Perfect. 
And let's let's end with that because that's that's a perfect example. So should we then, as parents, not lord our authority over our kids? We we shouldn't we shouldn't be telling them what to do because who are we to tell them what to do? There's a strong move of parenting that Doctor Spock. There's this whole sense of let the kid figure out his own pace. Let the kid figure out that if the kid wants to eat, let him eat then. Don't let it. Who are you to tell a kid? You're the adult. You're the grown up. You're ten times their age. Yes, you get to say we're eating now. Now's the time that we eat. Or it's time for you to go to bed because if you don't go to bed now, you're going to be really cranky later because I'm smarter than you. I've been around for longer than you have. This isn't a debate. I don't argue with my children. Because if I argue with them and pretend like they're peers, and I'm not their peer, I'm their dad, we don't argue. But if we lord it over them, I guarantee you're going to screw stuff up. I guarantee you're not going to be perfect. If I sit there and I'm like, you yeah, will do as I say, snap the whip, I'm on top of this, and you're not, and I'm brilliant, and you're dumb, you know, yeah, very soon they're going to sit there and go, I don't think you are smart. Therefore, since your whole argument is based on I'm smarter than you, and I don't think you are, you have no authority anymore. And so, yeah, it, 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 this sort of thing shows you that you go, if you if you let the kids go off and you say, oh, I won't try to do anything, it's really bad for them. If you sit there and lord it over them and say, I'm in total control, it's really bad for them. So what do you do? I don't care whether you're a parent, whether you're a teacher, whether you're what, what do you do? If you shouldn't do a laissez-faire, let them do whatever you want, you shouldn't do an authoritarian, I'm totally in charge, you'll do what I say, what do you do? What's the healthy thing? Interactively share your God-given wisdom. Yeah, yeah. Respect one another. But respect them from a position of I've got more experience and I've got the responsibility and you don't. Isn't that what pastors are supposed to be doing? Whether they're a pope or the pastor of the church of the hundred? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the example of history that you've given us. So much of this seems so remote, and yet, even though the names may be funky or the places are pl places we don't normally think about, thank you for reminding us that the stuff that they dealt with 700 years ago is the same stuff we deal with today. The problems that they dealt with are the same problems we deal with today. The technology may change, the languages may change, but I pray, Lord, help us. Help us to actually stop and think, first and foremost, not about what our traditions tell us or what our modern culture tends to lean toward, but to really seek your face and to try to see the, the truths that never change and live by those. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Wacky fun stuff. So next week, uh, Peter Kim is going to be sharing about their mission to China. I encourage you to, to be here and join in with that. And then after that, come back to the wacky bubonic plague. Probably, probably be my play. Oh, I need to stop recording. Now.